watching online. They're out visiting parents and stuff like that. So happy to have you all as well. Um, happy Father's Day. Though I think it's worth pointing out, point it out at Mother's Day, point it out at Father's Day, uh, that for some people, Father's Day like, is a great time to celebrate their fathers or the father figures in their life because they've had really great dads or dad figures in their life. Uh, but for others, it's a hard day, right? It's a hard day to celebrate fathers if you have either, you know, lost your, your father uh, recently or not even not recently. You know, if this is a, a day bringing up memories of pain or because, like, you never really had much of a relationship or a very positive relationship with your father in the first place. So this can be a hard day for those reasons. So, like, we're, we're just saying that to point it out that everybody here is, um, is going through something. And whatever your experience of your, your own father, um, one thing I think we can all agree on is that mothers and fathers and parents, they really just, they matter a lot. They really matter a lot. Um, it's probably, when I think about the, the landscape of, of psychology, which we have so many great therapists here, I'm so thankful for, um, I, I'm interested in psychology, but of all the, the deferring theory, theories of, of, of psychoanalysis and psychology, um, Pretty much, I think they all can agree on the fact that uh, fathers, mothers, parents really have a shape and develop um, people's lives, their, their internal lives. You know, like like your your parents matter, your your fathers matter, your relationships with your fathers and mothers really matter. Uh, one of the most popular developmental frameworks right now is called attachment theory. It's, it's I think growing in popularity. A lot of my fer- therapist friends are talking about it a lot. Um, you've probably heard of it. I mean, I am by no means an expert, so what I'm about to say, take with a grain of salt. But basically, uh, as I understand it, it's the idea that children uh, develop uh, attachment to their primary caregiver, and ideally that attachment is a, is a secure attachment. It's marked by love and acceptance. They feel that like their relationship with their primary caregiver is one of security. You know, the goal in attachment is to be properly secured with your primary caregiver. And depending on how secure your attachment is with with your parents, uh, especially with your primary parent, your preferred parent, it's going to impact how that person goes about their life, like beyond their childhood. It's going to impact the way they engage in relationships. Your most fundamental relationships will impact how you are in the world, how you feel as a person in the world, how you navigate the world, to the extent that you have a secure and loving relationship with your, with your parents, you will feel secure and loved in your life going forward. I don't think that's a controversial statement even among psychologists. Obviously, there's, there's healing that you can do, right? But, but you start on the back foot if you don't have this secure relationship, attachment with your parents. I, I, as I said that, I just wanted to actually make one little note of something that I heard the other day, because I think that if I say that, then you who have, have children right now, maybe you're going to feel guilty because it puts a lot of pressure on you, right? And you're just like, oh man, I don't want to mess this up, because if I mess this up, it's going to be really bad. I heard this thing, and I can find the source if you, if you really want to know, that as far as attachment theory goes, if you can meet 30% of your child's emotional needs, that will develop a secure enough attachment for that person to have a normal life, 
right? 30%. I, now, I can't do 100%. Sometimes my kids come up to me and they have needs, and I'm just like, yeah, not right now. Thank you very much, right? And I can feel bad about that, but I think I can do 30%. <laughs> I think I can do 30% of caring. So I just wanted to share that with you. That was really, was really comforting to me as I was thinking about my own parenting and trying to be a father because, like, I'm not a perfect father. Um, I yell at my kids sometimes. I, I know. Fire me after. Let me get through this, though. <laughs> um, <coughs> I almost coughed into a mic. I'm sorry. I'm going to try not to do that. Ryan, you be ready. <laughs> ready with that mute button. Um, okay, so, so like 30% of the So That's just something I just wanted to say that to comfort you. Um, now, look, I'm not trying to, to do a whole talk on psychology this morning. Um, but I do want to point out the fact that everybody has a sense that when we're born into a context where we know and experience love, where that love is securely and consistently demonstrated, maybe not 100% of the time, but a good bit of the time, it becomes easier for us to become secure people in our lives, to be people who love other people well. We are most secure when we are most loved, and we are most confident when we are most loved. Being loved, receiving love, being on, on the receiving end, the object of love, has a way of steadying you in your life. It has a way of giving, inculcating in you a sense of identity and soundness and peace. And honestly, being loved really matters. That's just secularly, we could say, um, we could say that's true. And I, I would say um, it really matters because it shapes our identity. Our culture is, and I think we could all agree with this, is obsessed with the question of identity. Because we are obsessed with the question of, well, how do we achieve this sense of feeling complete and full and purposeful and at home in our own selves and in our own lives and in our day-to-day? -day? And it makes a ton of sense because as a consequence, I would say, of how life is arranged now in the modern world, we are being foisted into a lot of identity work that I don't think we're very well equipped to handle. All right, therapist says, yeah, okay, thank you. All right. I know I really appreciate that because I'm kind of like, I'm, let's say I'm reaching here. <laughs> right? So I'm out of my realm of expertise, but it's something that I, I intuitively sense to be true. Because I look around at young people, particularly people, people younger than me especially, I think from my generation downwards, the work of forming one's identity has been put onto a person in a way like never has been before. And it is exhausting, I think, for this younger generations. See, see, mothers and fathers have always mattered for forming a sense of identity, giving us confidence and self-assurance, helping us know who we are. But because of the way we arrange our lives today, that matters all the more. Let me explain what I mean. About a year ago, we went through a series called Dynamics of Faith, and, and I talked a little bit about identity. And I talked about the traditional versus the modern identity. And I'm actually just going to review that really quick. So... I'm recycling, because I'm so sorry. Again, fire me afterwards. Let me get through it. Um, okay, so I had some slides up here. Uh, do I have slides? Yes. Okay, good. I thought maybe they were broken. <laughs> um, oh, okay, that TV. Could someone turn that TV on, too? Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> uh, that's why. I was like, what's going on here? Okay, so look, traditionally, in traditional cultures, I don't just mean historically, but I also just mean in non-Western -like, like cultures. Traditionally, identity is formed from the outside in. 
And I have another little slide to kind of illustrate what, what that looks like. And I'm taking this, uh, I, I want to give credit to Tim Keller for some of these ideas. I don't know where he got them. He probably borrowed them from someone else. But some, just some uh, ideas about his ideas. So, um, I think I have another slide there with uh, the, those external sources, right? So traditionally, people kind of had their identity formed primarily through outside sources. So from their family and their family's expectations from their social expectations, and then from their, their beliefs, right? So, so their religious identity. So in traditional cultures throughout time, and still in some places today, like African culture is still very much like this, a lot of Asian cultures are still very much like this, people source their identity from outside themselves. Their sense of well-being, that they're, they're the right kind of person, that they're being themselves, is sourced from these external uh, message sources, family, society, and beliefs. And so, in traditional societies, they source their identity by, by honoring roles in families, right? If you're the oldest son in a traditional culture, much is expected of you. And that becomes your identity. You take that on, right? If you are um, in, in a different, in, in, in a traditional society, your uh, society, even beyond your family, has expectations of you. Tim Keller was, was talking about this, explaining these ideas, and he talked about his own kind of backstory, and his, his great-grandfather immigrated from southern Italy in the late 1800s, and he kind of tells the story this way. I don't know if he's making it up, but uh, he says, like, his, his great-grandfather just woke up one day, and he looked around, he decided... He didn't want to be a pot maker. And so he went to his dad and he said, Dad, I don't want to make pots. I know you've been making pots. I don't want to make pots anymore. I'd like to do something else. And his dad basically said, well, the problem is I'm a pot maker. Your grandfather was a pot maker. Your grandfather's grandfather was a pot maker. You're a pot maker. So I don't know how to not, you, you, that you could not be a pot maker, right? And the thing is, if you, if you in, our, in our culture here in this town in Italy, you try to do something else, everybody's going to say, but you're a pot maker. Right? That's, that's the, they just expected them to be a pot maker, right? And if you go to another town, they're going to say, why'd you come to this town? You live in this other town where you make pots, right? So that's how culture was. There was intricate expectations, social expectations that were defined externally to, to tell you who you are and what your role in society was. And, and people found their identity in fulfilling those roles. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's just the way it is. And that's how the world has worked largely forever. Tim Keller's grandfather, at this point, didn't want to be, uh, take those, adopt those traditional sources of identity anymore, so he went to the place where you could do something else, which is called America, right? The land of opportunity and freedom and to be a self-made person. I really, I, this is kind of an aside, but I've been thinking about the role that America has played in, in kind of re-situating Western culture. It's amazing because it's the place where you can go to be free of traditional identity and remake yourself. Cities function that way as well, right? It used to be that everyone lived rurally, and so you were defined by your culture, and then suddenly cities came and people could go to cities and be whoever they wanted to be. You could go to America and become a different person. And so, so, so we have, oh, oh, as we've moved out of traditional cultures, we, we've been freed from these external identity sources. 
Tim Keller's grandfather rejected this traditional identity source. He didn't let his family expectations or social expectations define his identity anymore. Of course, they, they still did in some ways. He went to America, and he still thought of himself as Italian, probably, and he probably thought of himself as having obligations to his family, probably sent money home or whatever. He did, he did all these things, right? But, but over the course of time, these traditional sources of identity, particularly, I think we're at a high point in the, in the modern Western world where these things almost mean nothing to people anymore. And it's, and it's thought that that's a good thing, that these things mean nothing. Look at our, all our media, right? We're just told, no, be your own self. I mean, even when, when people like run into expressing their identities th any, anymore and people and their families push back, the advice that people give, the typical advice you'll find on the internet and just in, in all our media is, well, cut off your family, they don't matter. Choose your own family, right? Reject every external voice that doesn't affirm who you want to be or, or tell you you can be who you want to be, right? So, so we've moved away from these traditional sources of identity, and now instead of identity being outside in, the external world of telling me who I am and giving me a sense of affirmation of who I am, we've moved to, to a modern identity. And so modern identities are not outside in, they are inside out. Modern identities are inside out. Instead of looking to external sources to tell me who I am, I look internally to my own uh, thoughts, feelings, and desires. Right? Desire, what do I want? What am I thinking about? Where do my thoughts go? How do I feel about the world? And we've cloaked these things in the language of the true self, right? So if we gotta find our true self, Modern people don't look to their surroundings to find out who they are or who they should be. They look inside. Modern people don't ask, what do mom and dad want for me? Or what is my duty to king and country? Or what does God want from me necessarily, particularly if they haven't grown up in a religious context? They just ask the question, what do I want? And then they ask the question, which is where it gets complicated, what do I really want? How do you know what you really want? I don't know what I really want. And then you get down this road. Like, I, I'm, just, I'm just pointing this out because I really think this is a rough a road to plow. Is that, that the phrase, a road to plow? I think so, right? To, 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 be, to put on people the need to define everything about themselves is an exhausting thing to put on people, especially young people right? To just go and tell them to go say, man, you form your own identity, you form your own sense of security by looking to your true self, and you'll find your, in your desires, which are constantly changing, you'll try to figure out who you truly are. I think this is an exhausting proposition. If a modern person asks, what should I do with my life? They're not told, well, just go into the family business. There isn't a fallback. The, 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 the only answer the modern world gives them was find what you really want to do. I didn't I don't know, maybe I found out what I really wanted to do like two years ago. <laughs> I'm almost 39 years old. Hi, that's exhausting. We're, we're, not, we're not told, you put so much pressure on people, we have to figure out what we really want to do. You want to, you want to figure out who you should marry, we tell people, well, follow your heart. It's like, I don't know, my heart's giving me mixed signals. I don't, I don't know, right? The, the, the modern identity, modern identity formation is exhausting. For modern people, there's so much pressure to look inside, find answers, which I think explains why we are so concerned now with secure attachments. 
with having self-confidence. Because uh, if you're a modern person, you have so much riding on knowing your true self. And if you look inside and you feel insecure, which many of us do, I feel all the time. I, and I've had a, I think I had a pretty decent father and a good, great mother, you know? But I still feel insecure in myself. And so if you feel insecure, if you look into yourself, you say, I don't know what I want. And like sometimes what I want changes. Then who am I supposed to be? And you get in this place of paralysis and anxiety. And we have so much anxiety. I think this is part of the reason why. And what most people who try to live this life out, this, this identity script out, is they find out that, well, well, they might want different things and they might have different ambitions. I think everybody comes to this one understanding and it's really true. Everybody wants to be loved and everybody wants to feel loved. You want to be loved. I want to be loved. You want to be approved of. We want to be approved of by our parents. It's the most important natural source of, of, of approval and love. We want to be loved and appreciated by our society. We want to love ourselves and appreciate ourselves. And that's not always easy. We want to be loved by God and appreciated by God. See, all these identity sources, I think, are very normal because we have a natural desire to be loved. And by them, we typically figure out, we navigate the difficulties of life and our anxieties, and we figure out the question, am I okay, am I approved of, am I loved, through these identity sources. And I think the truth is that like, we're supposed to have both of these things going on. Um, but here's my whole point in bringing this up, because I know this is a long introduction. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a proclamation of the good news that you are loved. It is a demonstration to give us assurance that God says and believes that you are loved. And that he's going out of his way to demonstrate his love. Romans 5.8, favorite verse, life verse. Everybody should have this memorized. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the message sent into the world by God, proclaimed by Jesus and carried by the church into the world and now and forever into till Jesus returns is this. All y'all running around trying to figure out who you are and trying to live up to your identity roles, external or internal, so that you can have this sense of being approved of and cared for and loved, like, all of that is given as a gift by God to people who are totally against him. God has proved his love for you. It doesn't mean that everything you do, he's really happy about, right? But it does mean this, you can be secure and steady and formed in your deep inward parts and, and, and just anchored in his love. We have a deep-seated desire to be loved, and I do too, to know that we're okay in our natural selves, like we, we turn to these identity sources. But we are called as Christians, right, to be people who are just like, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, like we're fulfilling our, our roles and our obligations and stuff to our families. But we are called to do the work of lifting up this one thing, this one great hope, that we're loved by God and just letting it be the thing that we don't move from, the basis of our faith commitments. 
that the love of God has been demonstrated in Christ Jesus. He's taken away sin once and for all so that there's no separation between us. We're called to latch onto that and let that be the thing which shapes and forms our identity in Christ. We all want to be loved. The gospel is God's way of indicating that we are. Um, because I haven't quoted Dallas Willard in a little while, I think I will. You know, I know Bob did last week or a couple weeks ago. So, but that's just way too long. So let's. We went a whole week without. I don't know. Well, did you quote Dallas Willard? Well, I was. The one thing. No, I just. No, I just. Joking, sorry. Uh, perfect love is only found in God. I'm just going to say that again. Perfect love is only found in God. Love is a gift from God who is love. We can seek a gift and we can receive a gift. We don't perform for a gift. So when we read passages of Scripture about love, we must remember that the call to us is not to do as much as it is to receive. Okay? I mean, that's really important. The call to us is not to do so much as it is to receive. The primary thing is that we receive love. We love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. This is why the preaching of the gospel is essential and why there is nothing more important uh, on the face of the earth than that ministers and teachers of the gospel teach plainly, plainly, the love of God towards every person. This is why John 3.16 is so vital, for God so loved the world. I really struggled to prepare this message because I love to complicate things, right? But I just, I just want to just like sit here and just tell you, you have such a need to, to, to know the love of God, and God is amply supplying that in Jesus. Like he, he, he loves you. His love is not wavering. It is not contingent upon your performance. It is a love that can be received, and, and the, the work is in the receiving. I want to just spend a little bit of time in, in 1 John 3 and just make three little points about 1 John 3. Okay, I'm just going to read it here. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Just three quick points about this. Number one is that we're the beloved children of God. We're the beloved children of God. That's what scripture says about us. And it says it all over the place. I'm going to actually bring up some other scriptures in a little bit later, pointing, pointing to the fact that, yeah, you are the beloved children of God. That is the identity. That's how God looks at us and sees us. He doesn't look at us as just, oh, the worst, we're the worst. Oh, that, why did I create that one? Ugh. You know, he looks at us as, as beloved children, right? And I look at my children, and sometimes they do poorly, and I still love them very much. It doesn't change the fact that I love them, depending on their performance. Man, we are beloved children of God. And I just, I just love it how, 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 how the writer here, he says, 
see what great love the Father has given us uh, that we should be called the children, children of God. So he basically says, hey, isn't it awesome? You're called children of God. And then he stops himself and then he says, and we are, because he's anticipating the thing that you're going to say to yourself, well, I mean, I'm not really, I'm not much of a child. He, the point he's making is, is, is emphasizing we're children of God. Like, come on, don't, don't let anything rob you of that. He's trying to make it clear. We truly are children of God. And then he, he follows on to, to address some objections as to why we might doubt our, our belovedness. Right? So, so he goes on there. But I just want to stop there and just, just say this thing. The scriptures make it clear. We're loved of God. He died for the sake of love. He sees you and he cares about you. He knows about all your sin and all the bad things you've ever done. He still loves you. Beloved children of God. And I, you know, I don't know what it is. The older I get, the more like this astounds me. Because I think when, my, my kids do this all the time. I like tell them I love them and they say, oh, I know, I know. I know. And I just want to like slap them, right? Because I love them. <laughs> like, no, that's really, that, that means something. You should know that. Like, like it really, it, it should mean something to me. But like, like, I'm so used to just like ignoring the fact that God loves me. But, but over and over again, I read scripture. And I mean, particularly in this scripture. And it's just like, I just have to reckon with the fact that we have a great love that the Father has given us to adopt us in and call us children of God to offer us life and peace in Jesus Christ. He, he gives us those things. It's a great thing. It's an astounding thing. We should, we should let that sink in and, and let us, you know, really understand that. God loves me, and he loves you, and it is work believing that sometimes, but it's work worth doing. It's worth really reflecting on that. Observation number two um, you know, we're, we're beloved children of God. And I think this is really, it's what, kind of what I'm reading into this, this passage. I think, it's, I think it's right there. It's, it's, we're receiving an identity. We're not performing one. Like that, that, that's the emphasis. That's the really important thing that we need to understand, right? The thing is about like the way we normally get our identity sources, either externally or internally, is that we perform to achieve them, right? I get an ex a, a affirmation of my external identity in, in a traditional sense by fulfilling the roles and expectations that other people have of me, doing them well. And they say, good boy. And I say, thank you, right? Makes me feel good, right? But it's a, a performance-based thing. When I don't do those, and people, people in traditional cultures will tell you this, when you don't do them well, you get lots of shame heaped on you. You get the opposite of affirmation and, and thankfulness, right? And the same thing is true with, with internal identities, right? The thing is, like, if I go and do this, like, introverted thing and I try to figure out what I really want and who I really am, then I am obligated to live that way and make everybody see and appreciate me for who I really am. Because if they don't, then how do I know that this is really who I'm supposed to be? I have to perform my identity. That's the problem with these earthly sources of identity be they traditional or modern, it's that they always need to be performed in order to do the work of shaping. But what Jesus tells us and what he does for us, what the gospel does for us, is that he gives us an identity that is not on the basis of my performance, but on the basis of my receiving it. 
says it right here, First John. He says, dear friends, we're God's children now. Now means now. <laughs> we're God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we, see, we will see him as he is. See, the gospel has an answer to my identity issues. And it's this. Your identity is not contingent on how great you do at being a child of God. It's, it's not about that. You've received an identity as a child of God from God. It's something that he has given to you. He offers it to you. He's died so that you might have it and know that it's true. We need to know we're loved. We need to know God approves of us and cares of us, that he's forgiven us and accepted us. And as we do that, we will, like he says here, we have not, what we will be has not yet been revealed. Like, if we just sit here as, as children of God now, like, like we're going to, it's going to come about. God's going to take care of the making, the performance side of things, Right? We have to be clear on the receiving. Like, your children of God now, which has been and has not yet been revealed. Um, I, I really have been struggling to figure out how to, to explain this. I, I'm sorry if this is like a little woo-woo. I don't know. You can ask my wife how I've been this weekend. It's not been good. <laughs> Just trying to squeeze this, this, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes it's like that. Anyway, sorry. I'm not asking for sympathy. Um, okay. We, we just went on a road trip. We went 2,500 miles to Colorado and back. We'll talk about that later. But <coughs> along the trip, especially once you get like into Utah and beyond, there's a lot of trains, a lot of trains in middle America. Funny thing about trains is that they are so long. Oh, look, yeah, there's a picture of a train. Good. I'm glad I remember to put that in there, right? And we'd be driving along, you know, and they're on back roads and stuff, like winding through valleys, and we'd like see a train, and then you like, you know, like you see the engine of the train, right? And then you drive for like four more minutes, and you're like, that's still the same train. How is it possible that we passed the engine like four minutes ago, but that thing is still moving along there? We're like, we're driving at like 80 miles an hour, because <laughs> it's Utah. That's the speed limit there. <laughs> It doesn't make any sense. Like, I, I, I know that's like the dumbest observation in the world. Like, yeah, that's a train. That's how it works. It just has one engine and everything else, else gets pulled along. But to me, this seems significant. I don't know if this is going to make any sense, right? Like, like it's, it's, it's amazing to think to me that like, okay, like, say the train gets to where it's going. The engine gets to where it's going. And then it has to keep going for four miles till the caboose finally gets there. What we're going to be has not yet been revealed. But if that train, if that engine just keeps going, eventually the caboose is going to get across the line. I think that's pretty cool. I don't know. This, like, this, I, I'm embarrassed by that illustration. I'm embarrassed by that illustration because I'm like, is this like, isn't that cool? Like, that's, that's what I'm saying. Isn't it cool? All right, I'm moving on. Dallas Willard says, the main thing you, that, that God gets out of your life is not the achievements you accomplish, but the person you become. I think that's it. Um, I was talking with a friend this past week who was dealing with sin issue in his life, right? And I've dealt with so much sin in my life. 
and sometimes not dealt with sin in my life, right? Uh, so I have a lot of experience with sin. Maybe you do too. <laughs> and the thing about sin Like, like, God hates sin. Like, we know that. Like, sin is, a, is, a, is an issue. It's an issue because the thing about sin is it comes from a place of a heart that has decided to keep sinning. That's the real issue. It's not just that God hates sin. God hates it when people get into patterns of the will that continually go down a path of sin. We need to be serious about sin in our lives and deal with it. But I think the way that we do that is really reflect on what ability we have to overcome sin. Sin is a defect, not of your character, but of your will. That's, if we read Romans, it becomes really clear. You read Romans like four through eight. You walk away feeling the, 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 the problem that Paul describes with sin, the problem of the will, what I want to do up here, I don't do. What I know is right and good and commendable before God, those are the things I don't do. And then he, then he says, and this will throw a modern person, the things that I don't want to do, those things I do. Well, what's my real self then, right? <laughs> um, anyways, the problem is, like, with, with sin is that I need to deal with my will. How do I deal with my will, right? Real, really the issue with sin, and this is the kind of the advice I gave, gave this guy. I said, look, you did something stupid. My wife doesn't like when I say stupid, so I sinned against her. I don't know, and maybe some of you. I, look, if, if I do something dumb, if I do something sinful, you, usually what I, what, I, what I do is I, I try to deal with that by saying, okay, next time, I'm going to be stronger. But let me, uh, but, you know, let, let me ask you this. Have you, have you ever done that? You ever done that before? When you've done something wrong, you just say, next time you're going to be stronger? How did it work out? Were you stronger next time? The thing is, like, the strength that I need, and I do need a kind of strength, but I really need a, a strength and a, and, a, and a help with my will. I need to, next time I come to a moment of temptation, I need to want the right thing. How do I change my will? How do I become a person who wants the right thing? You know, there's not, the kind of solutions that we might come up with, and usually the one that we come up with is, well, I'll make myself feel really guilty right now, and then I will want to not feel guilty next time and that's just a great way to feel guilty next time even more, not to be stronger. Third point about, about uh, 1 John here, and I'm just going to read you what, what 1 